Well, I don't know about you, but in our house, once December hits, we are officially allowed to start reveling in the Christmas season. Up until this point, I resist the requests to make the mince pies, to put up any decorations, and most importantly, not to open the tin of Quality Street. We like to save it up and then go big for a month. The exception is Oscar, who does like to wear Christmas socks all year round, but we'll just scrub over that. One of my favourite things about the lead up to Christmas is the music. I do find that carols can have a habit of dividing the crowd. People either seem to love them or loathe them, and I fall firmly into the love them category. Of course, as with any genre, there are some I don't care much for, but on the whole, I thoroughly enjoy the fact that for this special time of year, there are beautifully crafted songs packed full of biblical truth about the greatest story of all time. There are so many lines I could pick out which capture the wonder and the, the beauty and the hope of this moment in time which changed the world forever. These songs are written to help us worship and celebrate this amazing season when we remember that God sent his son into the world to provide a way once and for all to end the power of sin and death in our lives and instead bring us into relationship with him. I'm truly humbled by the image of, of our servant king, the one who was born in a stable, who laid all things aside for me and for you, for the world. The humility he demonstrated, his strength in the face of human weakness. I love how the God who demonstrated his immense power in such public and powerful ways throughout the Old Testament performed the greatest miracle of all in the still of the night when no one was really paying attention except the heavenly realms who could see it all unfolding and were having one heck of a party. All these moments are so elegantly described in the songs we sing at Christmas. So we thought that as we go through this month, we would take a closer look at a few of these carols and dig into what they have to say to us. So we're going to start with Joy to the World, which is a wonderful carol written by Isaac Watts. As with many worship songs, he based it directly on scripture. And in this instance, it was Psalm 98. So we're going to read this psalm and then take a closer look at it. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp of the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is such a great psalm to look at as it breaks down nicely into three sections and gives us a message we can really easily get hold of. The first section is about celebrating God's past salvation. The second is about celebrating his present reign. And the third is about celebrating his coming rule. 
In these first three verses we read, the people are urged to sing a new song to God because he has done marvellous things. Notice the use of the word marvellous. It implies miraculous things, supernatural things. And these events have resulted in salvation or more literally victory. And what's the writer referring to? Well, in this instance, most likely is talking about the Exodus, the truly miraculous event when God freed his people from Pharaoh. That was a big deal. Plagues, pillars of cloud and fire, supernatural provision. Our God, you see, doesn't just give us a system of teachings or things to do or not to do. He actually acts in history. He does things. Richard Foster, who's a Christian author, said that we worship the Lord not only because of who he is, but also because of what he has done. His goodness, his faithfulness, his mercy can be seen in all of his dealings with his people. And this is true not only of the history that we read about in the Bible, but also our personal story. God has stretched out his arm of salvation towards you and me. He's worked mighty miracles in our own lives. We have plenty to sing about, not only because of what we read here in the Bible, but also because of how he has acted in our lives. When I go back into my own history, I can see the strong arm of God reaching down, bringing victory in areas of healing where he helped me understand and trust in his providence in my life, bringing provision where he gave me a family when I was alone and how he created opportunities where I could work in places that has brought me joy and used my gifts. So we can glean from just this first verse alone that there is much to sing about in terms of what God has done for us, both personally and across the history of his people. We also read about how God has worked his salvation publicly. In verse 2, we read, He's made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness to the nations. In verse 3, we read that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So God not only created the universe to show forth his glory, but he also saves in a way where his glory is seen. That wonderful reality of who he is would be known, would be made public. It's not a secret thing or something we even have to try very hard to spot. It's all around us and evident to see. And God has also worked his salvation lovingly and faithfully. He undertook these miraculous actions because, as verse 3 tells us, he's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to us. He's, he loves his people, he loves you and he loves me. He was faithful to his promises to Israel and he is faithful in his promises to you and to me. God's salvation is always for the ultimate purpose of worship. It was for worship that the first exodus occurred. There was a greater purpose for the Israelites' freedom from slavery. It was so they could enter into the delightful wonder of worshipping the God who made them and saved them. This is the pattern that continues into the New Testament. Mary alludes to this very psalm and others like it when it dawns on her that she is on the brink of a new exodus. The angel told her that this baby conceived by the Holy Spirit would be given the throne of David and rule an everlasting kingdom. The beginning of the Christmas story. So in visiting her relative Elizabeth, Mary did exactly what the psalm says to do and as Hannah, the mother of Samuel, did before her, when God worked miraculously in her life, she sang a new song to the Lord. So these first three verses are showing us 
that our God is a God who works real victories, which he has made public so all can see, and he invites us to sing about it. So what does this singing and celebration look like? Well, as we read on in the psalm, the celebrations start gathering a bit of pace, a bit of noise. What does it say in this next section, looking at celebrating his current reign? Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. So in verse 4, now all of the earth, all of the nations that have witnessed the saving act of God for Israel are summoned to celebrate in worship. His work through Israel was meant to spread out to the other nations as well, as they see him as their rightful ruler. There's the progression, Israel first, then the world. His saving work was designed to create true worship where it didn't exist before. We also see in this section the sounds of worship. Things are getting louder. What started off as a new song grows into a breaking forth and there's this eruption of praise. If you haven't noticed, the the human race has a bit of a thing for music. Music's a wonderful gift that God has given us. Musical instruments make an early appearance in the Bible. They they show up in chapter 4 of Genesis. In our dominion over the earth, God gave humans the ability to shape wood and metal and other materials and to interact with it in such a way as to create instruments. There is something about music, whether it be listening to it or producing it ourselves with our voices or other instruments, that's, that's profound. Listen to what some various other people have said about music. Bono says music can change the world because it changes people. Bach said music is an agreeable harmony for the honour of God and the permissible delights of the soul. Delius describes music as an outburst of the soul. Confucius says music produces a kind of pleasure which human nature cannot do without. And Hans Christian Andersen says that where music, sorry, where words fail, music speaks. We can see how right across the centuries from all different walks of life, people find music to be a deeply profound and important part of their life. I can remember as a child, before I had any conscious knowledge of God, getting totally caught up and lost in listening to different pieces of music in a way that was inexplicable to me at the time. My soul felt soothed, I felt at peace and somehow stirred to life at the same time. Now, looking back, I I think it was simply part of God's gift to me in the same way that creation is a universal expression of common grace, so the gift of music is there for us all to enjoy. What is it that makes music so special, though? Apart from the fact that I think it captures God's creativity in us, I think it's also because we were made to worship God. Remember what we just looked at, the nation of Israel, Mary, Hannah, all responding in worship. And music connects us to this worship so powerfully. As we worship through music, we meet God himself. C.S. Lewis was an unbeliever, an atheist, for a good section of his life. And he really struggled with this idea of a God who would command worship of himself. It sounded to him egotistical and it just seemed wrong for God to demand that he be worshipped. Until Lewis realised that when we praise God, God heightens our awareness of his presence. It is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates himself to men and women. These verses are describing to us 
the outburst in our souls as we see who God is and take stock of what he's done. Richard Foster again says, worship is the human response to the divine initiative. That's exactly what we're seeing right here. In the final three verses of this psalm, as we move on, things start to get really mad. Verse seven, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. In verse 7, we see this progression of the noise level continuing. Now, not only is it Israel singing of their victorious saviour, the nations all over the world are breaking forth and joining in, but also nature itself is roaring. Have you ever experienced nature roaring? Those moments of standing on a beach, being buffeted by the wind, spray battering your face and the waves crashing onto the shore. There we get a small taste of nature. Or when there's a lightning storm and the ink black sky is is torn to shreds with fork after fork of brilliant white light, followed by those rumbles and explosions of thunder that seem to shake the house. That can be scary. Or when we stand on a mountaintop and it feels as if the whole world is laid before us like a giant map. The woods and the streams look like they're painted onto the landscape, bathed in the brilliant colours of a sunset that stretches beyond the sky, painted in colours that even a photo couldn't do justice to. Wow, it's it's amazing. That's, That's nature, that's creation shouting out the glory of God. So where does this worship and creation and celebration of the glory of God reach its crescendo. Where is it heading to? Well, in this psalm, it finishes talking about a God of justice. The final verse reads, the Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And it's worth us spending just these last few minutes together, understanding what it means for God to be a righteous judge and where that leaves us right now. It's no secret that we live in a world where there's widespread corruption, there's widespread disease and severe injustices, and it needs a complete overhaul. Around the world, more than enough food is produced to feed the global population, but more than 690 million people still go hungry. World hunger is on the rise, affecting 8.9% of people globally. So currently, 25,000 people a day are dying because of starvation. That's an injustice. Climate change is not simply an issue of trying to do the right thing to look after our planet. We're told to steward it well. On a national and local level, those people who are most vulnerable to the adverse environmental and health consequences of climate change are poor people members of minority groups, women, children, older people, people with chronic diseases and disabilities, those living in areas with high prevalence of climate-related diseases, workers who are exposed to extreme heat or increased weather variability. Low-income countries have far less capability to adapt to climate change than high-income countries, yet it's the high-income countries that cause the problems. This is an issue of justice. In our country, we criminalise people for having mental health issues, we penalise those seeking safe refuge, and we marginalise those from ethnic minorities, the disabled and female lone households. 
The Bible clearly tells us God's heart on these issues. We are instructed to look after the widows and the orphans, to welcome the foreigner and protect the vulnerable. There's an injustice going on here. A study by Loughborough University last year identified that in Bedford, 35% of children are living below the poverty line. There are over 300 people in our town living in temporary housing, let alone all of those sofa surfing we've lost count of, meaning they have no home to call their own. Someone died on our streets a few weeks back, less than 400 metres from this building, on their own, living in squalor in some bushes. That's an injustice. Whether it be elected governments, dictatorships, large corporations, qualified judges, there will always be those in society who make decisions about how the rest will live. And it can be easy to point the finger of blame at them. But we, we live in a fallen world made up of weak people prone to bribery, corruption and greed. So those who are in a position to make decisions which have such far-reaching effects don't always get it right. Well, it's into this world that God, who judges with righteousness and equity, steps. Both of these words, righteousness and equity, have to do with what is right or fair or equitable. There will be nothing capricious or arbitrary about God's judgment. Unlike human judges or rulers or bureaucrats, the Lord will never favour the wealthy and powerful or fail to heed the pleas of those who are poor or vulnerable. Unlike human judges, God will never be delivered, diverted pardon me, by legal technicalities or the arguments of glib lawyers. Unlike human judges, God never makes a mistake. God is coming as a righteous judge to take up active executive control, to right all wrongs, to redress all imbalances, to publicly show himself as sovereign king. The strong and deep praise described in this psalm is not only for the marvellous things God has done, we read about back in verse 1, it's also for the work he's about to do. His righteous rule and reign will be a welcome relief for creation that has suffered under the sin and rebellion of mankind. So in closing, this psalm exhorts us to worship to worship the God who has stretched his arm of salvation throughout history, who stretched out his arm of salvation towards us. And it gives us reason to hope. A day is coming in which everything will be set right at last. And whilst we wait for this glorious day, we should be unstoppably motivated to work for the new world in the present. As we pray for God's kingdom to come here on earth, there is no way we can rest content with the major injustices in the world. I'm so grateful to be part of a church family which cares for the poor. From those seeking reform at a global level to those caring for people on our local streets. For those willing to speak up for racial injustice, gender discrimination and the sanctity of life. For those caring for children who would otherwise be without a family. And those running businesses in such a way which protects the environment. I'm so grateful for the King's Arms Project team, for the Retrack Initiative, for our holiday club, for our groups which reach broken and lost people. As we worship our God as a church family, we know that he is our rock. His works are perfect and his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. I know he will bring an end to the suffering and the injustices in our world. And whilst waiting, I will worship and invite you to do the same, 
and to do all we can to bring his kingdom to the darkest places, knowing that one day there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. The rivers will indeed clap their hands and the mountains will indeed sing and we will all join in. Have a blessed week. See you soon.